So this section that we're in, in Ephesians, if you remember, um, we talked about how in chapter 5, verse 21, Paul gives this command, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And so what he's doing really in this section, uh, in all of the rest of chapter 5 and then this first part of chapter 6 is, he's showing us how that submission works in real life. The idea of submitting one to another doesn't mean that everybody has to submit to everybody else. Obviously, that doesn't work exactly that way. It means that God says, listen, there's a flattening of, of our positions so that even though one may have authority over the other, there's a different way that we use that authority. That something happens in, it, when God starts to change us, when the gospel starts to change us, when Jesus starts to change us, something happens that flattens the way we look at each other. It equalizes us. And, and something happens in the way that we exercise authority or receive authority. God changes our hearts to have a perspective towards authority that brings glory to His name, that shows something about His goodness. And so really what we're going to do is look at that in two areas. Paul wants to deal with what that looks like in the home and, in a sense, what that looks like in the workplace. Now, he talks about bondservants and masters, and we're not going to uh, avoid the issue of slavery. Don't worry, we'll talk about that. But that's the application. The application is going to be, what does it look like to submit one to another at home? Parents to children, what does it look like to, to, to submit in the workplace, bosses and employees? And so that's what we want to look at today. So there's four main things. You should have uh, a bit of notes with you, an A5 bit of note near you that has these four things on it. And, and, and basically, all four of these things apply to every single one of us, no matter what stage of life that we're in. Because if God's goal for these commands, if God's goal for these guidelines is for us to trust Him more, guess what? No matter where you are, you need to trust Him more. And so these things just give an illustration of how every one of us needs to trust, as well as instruction of how we need to trust Him in specific circumstances. So the first group He deals with are children. And He says in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, the New Testament clearly affirms parental authority. That is, that parents have an authority over children. That's super clear. Now, if you have children, you're like saying, amen, I'm so glad that's true. But the thing is, that's, that's come under debate at times. As a culture, we believe that parents have a responsibility for children. The, the prime responsibility, we, we use language like, who's the prime caregiver? But the reality is we see everyone responsible for children. Now, there's something good about that, but there's also something potentially unhealthy about that. It can undermine the reality that as far as God's concerned, us as believers, that our standard needs to be His standard, and His standard is to affirm parental authority. Jesus was an example of this. We saw this last week, didn't we? Remember in Luke chapter Two, we say that the, the boy Jesus, he was 12 years old, says, Then Jesus went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was subject to him, to them. In other words, he put himself under their authority. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, that's her ministry. And what happens? As he does this, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, in favor with God, and in favor with men. Keep that last part in mind. We're going to come back to that. Now, he goes on to say in verse, uh, verse 2, the first part of verse 2 of chapter 6, he quotes uh, Exodus chapter 20, and Paul says, honor your father and your mother. Now, we've probably all heard that before, especially if you've lived in this country for very long. You've heard that before, honor your father and mother. If you are a child, even if your parents weren't believers, they probably said to you, honor your father and mother. It, it comes up in some way at some time. And it's important that we understand what the word honor means. Honor means to value. It means to value. It's not about sort of a form that it takes. That that's can change a bit in culture and, and circumstance. But there's a reality that, that Paul here and the Holy Spirit is calling us, as Jesus followers, to not just be under parental authority, but to value parental authority. Now, I want to talk to you guys who are still dependent upon your parents in some way. So I want to kind of address you guys that are younger, you're still living at home, 
And I mean young in a relative sense, okay? But you're still at home. You're still dependent upon your parents. Because I think once you move out of the house, this does take a different turn. But I want to just say, okay, you're in the home. You're still dependent upon your parents. If you desire to follow Jesus, you need to understand that what God wants you to, to, to believe, what God wants you to act upon is that He has put your parents in your life, your caregivers in your life for a reason. And that reason is to bless you. That reason is to grow you. Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, John, but you, you don't know the kind of parents I have. You know, they look great at church, but you don't know what they do or what, how they've been. Now, listen, if there's something really going on with, with you, with your parents, that you are really concerned about and you feel like you can't talk to somebody, you need to know that you can talk to any of us, especially any of us on staff. You can talk to us. We have a strong child protection policy. We will walk with you. We will listen to you. We will not judge what you say. We are there to, to, to help you if we can. We, we, we need to have that mindset as a church. But, but a lot of times what happens, by the grace of God, that's not the norm. That's the exception. A lot of times what happens is that as children, we get frustrated with our parents. And just because our parents claim to be Christian or are Christian doesn't mean that frustration is not there. And we can think, okay, I know I'm supposed to obey my parents, but they get it wrong so often. But God says, listen, God still says there's still a value to their parenting. There's still something there that's meant to bless you and to grow you. Now, it's interesting because Proverbs talks about this a lot. And I just want to share a couple of verses from Proverbs. One is Proverbs 6.20 where it says, where, where, where Solomon writes, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And there, there's a picture there of relationship and ongoing instruction, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But also, listen, listen to this Psalm, or I'm sorry, Proverbs 23, 26, where again Solomon writes, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. Now, I know that you're, you young people, I know that your parents fall radically short. I know that because I fall radically short as a parent. But this is their desire. And I have to tell you, this is something that kind of my eyes were open to as soon as I had kids. That, that I used to be so critical of parents, maybe the way you are, so critical of parents until I became one. And then I realized the pressure and the weight of the responsibility and the guilt that comes with parenting. So often when I'm not the parent I need to be to my children, you know why I'm doing that? I'm doing that because I feel bad. I start feeling desperate. I've messed it up. I've got to fix it. And then I try hard in my own strength, and I mess it up even worse. This is what we do. And so I'm saying to you, even in that situation, I'm saying to you young people, God still has a plan to help you grow. God still wants to use that. He still wants you to value the fact that He set you in that home with those parents. They often just want your heart. You know, most of you, most of you uh, young people, you need to know your, your parents love you more than you can even imagine. You, you just don't know. It's funny, I say that we have a lot of babies, as you've probably noticed in the church, and I always say to the new parents, you never thought you'd love that much, did you? And they always say, I know. <laughs> it is, it's an amazing thing. This thing comes out, and it's not very attractive, but it's to you, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. You know, or when you adopt, this, this, this person comes home and it takes time to, to bond, but over time you begin to bond and you think, I didn't think I'd ever get here, but I'm there where I'm bonded to this child. It's an amazing thing. And with that amazement, with that beauty, with that responsibility comes sometimes not the best responses, but God still says there's value in them being your parents. Now, something else as well. I love what, what, what Paul writes here to, to, uh, to children, and he's talking probably to those, again, who are still at home. And he, and he says this. Notice he says, there's a promise to this command, and he quotes Deuteronomy 5. He says, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. That's what he says. Now, this is, this is an amazing thing, because some Bible commentators will say, well, actually, this now applies somehow to our eternal life. And that what that means is, is that when we come to faith in Jesus, if we're real Jesus followers, we will honor our parents. And God says, listen, you should do that because you're motivated by this gift of salvation you've already been given. I don't think those are untrue statements, but I don't think this is what this is saying here. 
I think what Paul's doing in quoting Deuteronomy 5 is saying the same thing that Moses was saying is there's a blessing meant for you from being under your parents, even if your parents weren't so great. In fact, what's amazing is this truth about a promise. If God makes a promise to us, and He says, listen, this promise is what I'm promising you, that there's a blessing coming underneath you, even if the circumstances are bad, we have a guarantee that that promise is going to come to pass. You know what that guarantee is? Jesus. This is what the Bible says. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Listen to what it says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for His glory. It's like God makes these promises, even promises that we think, well, how could this possibly be? Because this promise to be blessed under our parents seems to be dependent on our parents' obedience. And it would be if it wasn't for Christ. But because we have a sovereign God, a God who's over everything, God uses even bad parenting to help us trust Him more. You need to know that, young person. As frustrating as your parents can be, (laughs) you need to know that if you're believing in Jesus, God says, listen, I promise that this is going to work out for good. This is going to be a blessing for you. Remember, we we just read that verse in Luke 2 about Jesus and his relationship with his parents. He subjected himself to him. Don't forget, Jesus grew up in a home where his brothers didn't believe he was actually the Son of God. Mom did. We're thinking dad probably must have. (laughs) But the, the brothers and sisters, not so much. Not until after the resurrection. So that means he probably faced some serious ridicule growing up and you know, oh, Jesus, he's the perfect child, and he was. Uh, so that would be some pressure, right? Uh, and, but the thing is, is, is he, he had to cement himself to a situation that wasn't always easy. It wasn't a, a, an easy situation. But God says clearly, in doing so, what happened? He increased. He grew. Listen, young person, don't underestimate how God wants to grow you through submitting to your family, to your, to your parents. He really does. Now, he goes from children to parents in verse 4. And he says, verse 4, notice, and you fathers. Now, the word there is fathers. It is, it is the word that's for dads. It's not just a generic word for parents. There's a different word in the Greek for parents. So he's addressing fathers. And I want to make sure that you understand this, that as far as the New Testament is concerned, as far as the Scripture is concerned, fathers are meant to set the tempo for the home, specifically in regards to authority. Fathers are meant to do that. Now, before we go any further, we need to say a couple things about this. First of all, we need to address the reality of being a single parent. Some of you here are single parents. We have single parents in our midst. And I think the reality is we need to be compassionate, understanding in our support not critical or condemning, either in our verbiage or in our distance. We can do that. I've seen this happen. Even in our church, I've seen this happen, where the families that are more traditional and tight and, and do well are slower to spend time with the families that are struggling, maybe single-parent household, that sort of thing. That's not love. It's not good. I think there's also a reality when the single-parent home is... is, is run uh, by it's the mother, and that's more often than not the case, we need to be willing to be, in a sense, there as maybe uncles, you might say, to their kids, as much as we can be. Not neglecting our own kids to do that, obviously, but as much as we can be. I think we need to make sure that we are recognizing that there's a standard that God sets for the home. He wants fathers to to set the pace for authority, but if dad's not there, it doesn't mean that God's not in that family. Are you following me? God's still working that family. We want to support that. Also, let me say this about fatherhood. Because one of the things I've noticed, in fact, this has come out of my mouth, is it's very easy, I don't, I don't know if it's our political climate or just our own cowardice or what, but it's very easy to go, moms are lovely, dads get it right. We are so harsh on dads. You ever notice that? Mother's Day, Father's Day messages, have you ever been one? Mother's Day messages, it's all like, give them all flowers, they're wonderful, they're perfect, right? And moms are great, but they're not perfect. And dads, it's like, dad, you are horrible. Society's falling apart and it's your fault. 
We need to celebrate fatherhood. There are some great dads in this church. We need to celebrate fatherhood and celebrate motherhood. We need to say this is a good thing. This is a glorious thing. That's not to, that's not to be, again, belittle or devalue a single-parent home. It's to say that this is what God has instructed, and we want to celebrate it when it's being pursued well. So fathers are, are to set the, the tempo for this sort of pastoral authority in the home. But also, listen, he gives really practical instructions here. Paul says, and to you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the train of admonition. So he gives us a do and a don't. The don't is, don't feed your child's frustrations. Now, let me be really clear to you guys who are already parents, and even if you're not parents yet, you may be one day in the future. Listen, just because your child is frustrated doesn't mean it's your fault. I see this happen all the time. Kids throwing a tantrum, freaking out. I, 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 I just freaking out. And the parents are like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What can I do? What can I do? Don't do that. That's not, it's not your fault necessarily if the child's frustrated. But let's be honest. Living in this fallen world is frustrating, isn't it? It's difficult. Our children, like us, deal with a sin nature. They have a bent toward evil like we do. Our children live in a world that, that uh, is, by and large, against God, doesn't want to submit to God in His ways. Our children are susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. Is that not true? Read the Gospels, man. You'll see moms bringing their children, parents bringing their children to Jesus saying, this, my child's demon-possessed. Now, I, think, I know we think all our children are demon-possessed, but they're not. <laughs> but this, this can happen. There can be, the enemy can really attack our children. We don't want to deny that's the case. So it's frustrating for a little one to be in that. And you guys who have children that have special needs or learning difficulties, you know, that even gets exaggerated more, doesn't it? It's difficult. It's not an easy thing. And this is why it's really important that we don't add to our children's frustrations, that we are seeking God for the grace not to add to their frustrations. It's interesting that this, uh, this phrase, do not provoke them to wrath, the provoke and wrath are actually those two English words come together in one Greek word. It's really one Greek word. And it's this word that means to uh, anger alongside. It's like sharing your anger with somebody else. Now, in case you haven't noticed, I'm a little bit loud. And so what can happen with me is if I'm frustrated, I can get really snappy and bark and I can be that way. And I can kind of, that frustration can come out in little ways towards my children that just really frustrates them. I, I have no idea. It's got to be in the hundreds of thousands of times I've had to go to my kids and <laughs> repent for my bad attitude. Because life's not easy. Our circumstances, like your circumstances, can be challenging. And sometimes that frustration of a parent kind of spills over onto my kids and all I'm doing is feeding their frustrations. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't dump your junk onto your kids. Now, now listen, this is not me trying to make you feel condemned as parents. We all got junk that needs to be dumped, but you know where you dump it? At the feet of Jesus, at the throne of grace. That's where we dump it. But don't feed your children's frustrations. But here's what you do need to do. You do need to teach them to follow Jesus. This is the main thing. Your main job as a Jesus-following parent is not to convince your children to be voting for the Labor Party or the Conservative Party or the Lib Dems or any other kind of political nonsense. Nor is your main job to make sure that they vote the right way when it comes to moral issues even. Nor is your main job to make sure they get a good education. Your main job as a Jesus-following parent is to point your kids to Jesus. That's it. Now, the, those other things can possibly feed into that. Maybe not the politics, but the education for sure. They can, they can, feed, in, they can feed into that. But that's your job. Our job as Christian parents, as Jesus-following parents, is to teach our kids to follow Jesus. In a sense, that's what's kind of tied up in this idea of training and admonition. Training has this idea of being intentional about your priorities. Let me, let me read to you some verses from the Old Testament. Classic section on parenting from the Old Testament so that you understand what I'm talking about. Deuteronomy 6, listen to this. Listen, O Israel, 
The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. He says, tie them to your hands, wear them on your foreheads as reminders, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's the picture that Moses is setting up for God's covenant people? He's saying, listen, first of all, it starts with you actually having a real relationship with your God. The best thing you can do for your children, parents, is to know and love Jesus yourself. In fact, make sure you love Jesus more than you love your kids. And don't be afraid for them to know it. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do. It's a hard line to walk, really hard line. I mean, I'll tell you, there's loads of times where I look back on, on the choices that we've made. A lot of those choices, honestly, have been motivated by ministry and I think, gosh, they've affected the kids in a way that wasn't ideal. And you think, Lord, was that the right thing? Was that the right thing? Did I really just totally mess it up for my kids? And probably sometimes I was wrong. But most of those times, we knew this is what God was calling us to do. And we have to believe that in the long run, they're going to see that that's what happened. That we were trying to follow the Lord when we did those things. It's hard. It's hard to be a parent. It's hard to get it right. But this is where it has to begin. This is, has to be the goal. Okay, Lord, I can do nothing for my children if I don't just follow you. That's the best thing I can do, is just follow after you. That's what, that's what Moses is talking about, loving the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But also notice he's talking about having an atmosphere, being intentional about having an atmosphere that involves Jesus in everything. Now, this can be done by having you know, pictures on the wall that have Bible verses. That's a good thing. We have that. It's a good thing. That can be done through family devotions and family prayer time. That's a really good thing. You need to have that. But really, what this is describing is your whole life should be about your relationship with your covenant God, and it should spill out everywhere when you're with your kids. It should be a natural part of conversation. This is what God wants. So this is, this is a lot bigger, isn't it, than just trying to make sure your kids end up following your culture. This is a lot bigger than making sure your kids fulfill maybe dreams you couldn't, dream for your, you couldn't fulfill for yourself. This is bigger than your children doing something that makes you look like a good parent. This is really about saying, Lord, we want you to be seen. Interesting. Admonition here, it could be translated counsel or warning or uh, instruction. And the idea here is being really clear about the truth. Remember we read a, uh, some weeks or months ago now in, in uh, chapter 4 of Ephesians 4.21, Paul makes this really clear statement. He says, you have heard Jesus and have been taught by Jesus as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, keep it about Jesus. Now, my, my kids are getting older. As I'm getting older, my kids are getting older. And the truth is, my kids, uh, all my kids still profess faith. I'm really thankful for that. But all my kids have different views. They don't always agree with me theologically. They're so opinionated and think for themselves. I don't know where they get that from. <laughs> but they do. They, they, they're not, yes, Dad, whatever you say, Dad, I'm a complementarian too, Dad. It, it doesn't work that way. They think for themselves, and by the grace of God, often thinking through Scripture, not just kind of, here's my random idea. Now, that sometimes is hard for me, because I sometimes, I'll be honest, I don't feel validated as a parent unless my kids agree with me. But I have to realize that's stupid. <laughs> I want my kids to agree with Jesus. <laughs> I want my kids to follow Jesus. Let me, let me say this, too. For, for those of you who... Are, are raising children. You need to know this. Okay, the younger the children are, the more important it is that they see you as the authority. Okay? They need to know you're in charge. Don't be ashamed of being in charge. You are in charge. But the older they get, the more they need to see that Jesus is the authority. There has to be a transition. And it's interesting because I find what often happens, even in Christian homes, is when they're young, what's practically being expressed, maybe not verbalized, but practically being expressed is, okay, 
society or the school system is the authority, ultimate authority over my children when they're younger. When they're older, and I, make sure, I want to make sure they meet the goals I want them, then I'm the authority. No. You're the authority from the day that they're born to the day they leave their house. But as they're leaving your house, as they get older, you need to then guide them to Jesus. Let them make some of their own decisions about their futures. It's scary, man. We, one of the, the sort of guidelines we had with our children, and this is not to say you should do this, please. I'm not saying that these guidelines are for anybody. I'm just giving you as a way of example. But we, we said, okay, uh, before our kids are 16, we uh, choose their media exposure. We choose the kind of music they listen to, the kind of television or movies they watch. That's, we, we choose that. That might sound a bit heavy-handed, but that's the way we were. And when they're 16, they can start choosing their own media, as long as it's not, you know, obviously hideous, you know, um, uh, but, you know, or completely sinful. But, I mean, they have, you know, as long as it's something that I would allow in my house, potentially, even if I wouldn't watch it, then they can, they can watch it. Now, I'll be honest, <laughs> that hasn't always been the easiest thing. Sometimes they want to watch stuff, I'm going, I don't think you should watch this. And then what happens is I sit down and watch it and go, I don't think I should watch this. And I get pulled into it. It's a hard thing to know how to work this out. There there are times when you have to start giving your children some ability to let their own conscience form before the Lord Jesus. So they they can know what it means to follow Him for themselves. You have to make that transition. I'm not saying it's got to be 16 or 14 or 12 or 18. You have to wrestle with that with God. But I'm saying it has to happen. It has to happen. See, the point is, what we need to be clear about is Jesus. What we need to be intentional about is Jesus. Children need to be assured of God's promise. Look, your parents might blow it and not do what they're supposed to do, but God will always do what He's promised. And parents, we need to be examples of God's authority. A good authority. A liberating authority. A clear authority. That's what He calls us to as parents. Now, you know what has to happen if these things are going to happen? If we're going to be children who trust in God's promises and parents who, who, who are examples of God's authority, we actually have to believe that God is as He said He is. That God's a God who keeps His promises. That God's authority is indeed good. If we don't believe that, we don't understand the gospel. Man, before we go any further, please, you need to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The Bible teaches us, Scripture is really clear about this, that Jesus is God's only Son. He's God putting on human flesh, and He lived an absolutely perfect life, and He died on purpose. He didn't just predict His death, He laid down His life on purpose. And on the cross where He died, He took on all the punishment that you and I deserve. He absorbed that in our place. And just like He predicted, He came back to life. He resurrected in a new glorified body that would last forever, that would show us what our body is going to be like when we live forever. He resurrected, just like He said, guaranteeing that all His promises are true. And He rules and reigns forevermore. To become a Jesus follower is to say, I believe Jesus is that person and I want to follow Him with my life. See, this whole parenting stuff, this whole family stuff, if you see Jesus as a means to have a good family, you know what that really is? It's idolatry. Because you're worshiping your family and using Jesus as a genie to help you get that family. Now, don't get me wrong. Following Jesus helps you have a better family. I really believe that. But the, the end is not just to have a great family because here's the truth. I know lots of godly parents and their kids have gone off the rails. And I know lots of rubbish parents who profess Christ and their kids totally love Jesus. There ain't no guarantees in these things. Your kids have their own choices. And I've known parents that were, weren't Christians at all, that were amazing parents that I admire and go, man, I need to be a way better, you're a way better dad than I am. The point is not, let's create this perfect home. The point is, let's follow Jesus in the home. Now, we switch from 
the home to work. And I say work because, again, as I mentioned in the introduction, I believe that's the application. But I, I want you to notice what Paul says here in verse, uh, in verse um, where am I? Verse 6. Is it verse 6? I need glasses. Five. five. Verse 5. <laughs> Paul says, at least I can read the words. I can't read the numbers, but I can read the words. He says, bond servants, be obedient to those who you are your masters according to the flesh. Now, I want to be super clear about this, okay? The Scripture neither forbids nor condones slavery. Now, you, you might have been asked this. If you're a believer and you have friends that aren't believers, which I hope is the case, they might have asked you, well, why would you believe that book? That book condones slavery. It does not condone slavery. But sometimes what can happen is we backpedal to the point that we actually make the Scripture say something it doesn't say. The Scripture says slavery is bad. It doesn't actually say that. It doesn't forbid slavery. Now, this is not, that might be hard for you to understand. You, you might be going, well, how can that be? But just stay with me. This is something we have to be honest with. We don't really trust God's Word if we try to make it say something it doesn't say. Okay? Let's not try to make it say something it doesn't say. But we do need to understand what it does say. So when the Old Testament deals with the issue of slavery... It actually regulates slavery, or what it means to be, you might call, indentured servitude. It regulates it. Slavery has always been around since the beginning of human existence. Slavery continues today. In some ways, it's even worse. In fact, I think it's probably fair for us to say uh, most of us have been guilty of condoning slavery in some way. There's been lots of times when, uh, and probably still is the case with many companies, hire slave labor to make the clothes that we buy that's, that are inexpensive. If you've been involved ever in pornography or prostitution, you've encouraged human trafficking, human slavery. So let's not, let's not act like we're above this. The reality is this, okay? The reality is the Old Testament regulated slavery. God did that to set His covenant people apart from the other nations, but also, listen, to make sure that God's covenant people didn't abuse one another. So there were really clear laws to how long someone could be a slave who was an Israelite and, or, or an indentured servant, and when they had to be released and how that worked. Also did to show us a picture of what, what we are, how we are to understand our relationship with God. When it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament also doesn't forbid nor condone slavery, but what it does is the New Testament, as we're going to see right now, commands the kind of relationships that actually undermine slavery. So that it was believers in Jesus who actually were the ones who were most instrumental to say, and still are, the most instrumental to say, slavery is a heinous crime and it needs to be destroyed. It needs to be done. Where did that come from? From an express command in the New Testament that said slavery is bad? No. From the command toward relationships within a culture that was, Ephesus was one-third slaves. The population was one-third slaves. From a culture where the command is, listen, in a church that's probably going to be at least half slaves, Paul would say, you need to understand how these relationships work. And those relationships actually change how slavery can work and eventually make it to where slavery doesn't work. That's what we see. Now, I'm not ignorant to the fact that Christians tried to use the Scripture to justify slavery. They were wrong. They're wrong if they do it now. Christians try to use Scripture to justify all kinds of stuff that were wrong. They were wrong. But we do need to understand it. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily condemn it. We condemn it because our understanding of what Scripture teaches about those relationships but the Scripture itself doesn't say that. Are we clear? Now, what's interesting is that we have these commands, God, or, or Paul gives these commands to bondservants, to slaves, and it reminds us of some of truth, which is that we all need to be bondservants to Jesus. Look at the way Paul frames these commands. Verse 5, he says, you know, obey your masters according to the flesh, your human masters, he says, with fear and trembling. That's like with great reverence and respect. You're just like, yes, sir, no, sir. 
in sincerity of heart. In other words, like, not, yes, sir, I'm going to kill you in your sleep, but yes, sir, I want to do good to you. In sincerity of heart, he says, um, as to Christ. If you write in your Bibles, underscore that. He says, not with eye service as men pleaders, but notice what he says, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from your hearts. What's the will of God? That you walk in obedience. He then goes on to say, doing this, the doing the will, doing good with, I'm sorry, verse 7, with goodwill service, ask the Lord, not to men. Do you see that over and over again? Unto the Lord, as to the Lord, as the Lord's bondservant. What's the motivation there? Follow Jesus. Your motivation as a, as a servant, as a bondservant, is not to please your master, and that's where it stops. It's to please your master humanly because you want to please your master spiritually. You want to please Jesus, who's your, who is the Lord and master of all. In fact, Paul says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians when he's given instructions. Notice, listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, uh, Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you can get a chance to be free, take it. He says, And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a, a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you. Don't be enslaved by the world. Now understand what he's saying there. He, he wants us to recognize, listen, Paul wants the readers to recognize, the Holy Spirit wants us to recognize that bondservant, the attitude of I'm here to please somebody else, is the attitude of every Christian, or it should be the attitude of every Christian. But it's the attitude, listen, not the identity. Your identity is not servant. It's interesting to me that the writers of the New Testament often Revealed or, or, or identify themselves as a servant, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles would do that. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what did Jesus say about their identity? He says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you what? Friends. That's not your identity. Now, this is important because you might have the kind of job. Okay, now we're going to start applying this to employees, okay? You might have the kind of job where your bosses treat you like a slave. They act like your existence is to do whatever they want and you want to throttle them. And you want to just rise up and you want to riot. And I'm not even saying there's not a place for, um, what's the word? Sorry, uh, like corporate action. I think there's a place for striking. Not physically striking, you know, like picket lines. Sorry, got to be, be clear about that. There's no place for striking as a Christian. It's on the tape. All right. I think there's a place for that. But the, but the thing is, what, what Paul's calling us to is he's saying, listen, I want you to be thinking about what it means to follow Jesus as an employee. And following Jesus as an employee means, first and foremost, okay, what, what can I do to, to please those that I'm actually serving? Because I want to be pleasing to God in that. That's the motivation. Now, I know that's harder to do in some jobs than it is in others. I, I'm aware of that. And there's no way I could sort of like right now say, okay, let's apply this to each one of your jobs. There's no way I can do that. But this is a principle that we cannot ignore if we're going to follow Jesus. We have to see, even if our employers are bad, doesn't mean we shouldn't want their good. Now again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't complain if we're being misused or we shouldn't stand up for ourselves if people are breaking their contract to us. Yes, we should do that. That's actually part of loving them. But let's make sure that our motive in doing those things is not revenge or kind of sticking it to the man, but our motivation is, Lord, I want to be pleasing to you. Now, he also says in verse 8, notice, he says, knowing, here's what you need to know as a servant, knowing that whatever good anyone does he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's slave or free. Think about this. God is saying, he's given this great promise. God is saying, hey, whatever good you do to somebody else, I'm going to do that to you. If your reward in heaven is based on how well you've treated others, 
how great is your reward going to be? Or how minimal is your reward going to be? You see, the, what God wants us to understand is he's the one that's going to reward us. This is, this is really great news. Again, this does not mean that you cannot fight for higher pay or for your contract rights. It's all totally appropriate. I'm not saying you can't do that. But here's what I'm trying to say to you, okay? What I'm trying to say to you is even if it doesn't work out, even if your boss rips you off, if you're doing that good unto the Lord, God says, you are going to be rewarded in heaven. You're going to be that. You know what else it means? It means everything that you do. There's, there's, unless your vocation is illegal or immoral, <laughs> there's no vocation, no job that you have that God doesn't say, I'm going to reward you for. Now, you might be thinking, that's easy for you to say, John, your job is to do churchy stuff. But let me tell you, man, if you're digging ditches or frying burgers or, you know, stabbing pipe or um, teaching kids or you're a stay-at-home mom or whatever it is that you're doing, whatever you're doing, you do that unto the Lord and the Lord says, I'm going to reward you in a way that's going to blow your mind. That's what he promised you. I was talking with a a, a brother yesterday, a gentleman yesterday, um, about his job. He's, a, he's also a doctor, and he says, uh, he was talking about how difficult it was that his bosses were saying, what's your goal? And he's like, well, I'm a doctor. My goal is to take care of my patients. They're like, no, 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 no. no. That's not what we're talking about. No, your, what's your real goal? And he's like, it's to take care of my patients. And they, they wanted him to kind of set goals that had to do with targets and where he, how high he wanted to move up in the NHS and that kind of stuff. And he was frustrated with this. He's like, I want my goal to be to take care of patients. Now, his job can be frustrating, but if he does it unto the Lord, guess what? If his heart is like, Lord, I want to bless my NHS bosses, but I want to bless my patients, because let's be honest, they're the bosses, really. They're the ones who are paying for the service. We're the ones we need to, they're the ones we need to take care of. He says I, I, he can do that, even if things are frustrating. He can do that unto the Lord and be guaranteed he's going to be rewarded. And the same goes for your job. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that your quality of your life doesn't determine the quality of your eternity? You can have a rubbish life. You can have the horrible circumstances. But if you're doing what's there before the Lord, God says, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to bless you. I know that encourages me. That totally encourages me. Because I'll tell you what, the plans I had for my life and my ministry haven't turned out exactly what I thought they'd be. I thought by the time I was 50, I'd have a church of thousands on the beach in San Diego. <laughs> and God says, uh, no, that's not my calling for you. It's not what you have. You have a bunch of lovely people in Norfolk. That's what you have. And I thank God for you guys. The truth is, it's the, our reward in heaven that should motivate us as employees. God's reward for us. Listen to this. When we work this way, Great things happen. Check this out. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, not sh but showing all good fidelity or trustworthiness, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. You know what that means? How you work may be the only gospel your employers ever see that you work in such a way that they see how you work and they go, there's something about this person's life that's attractive. And you go, what's attractive is the doctrine of how great our God is who saved us. Don't underestimate that. And even if they go, well, okay, you say you're a Christian, whatever, I don't really care, it doesn't have the impact, you still get rewarded for it. Amen. That's the point. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 6. Now, this is definitely talking about how we serve each other in the church, but I think it applies in general to work. He says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and you do minister. He's talking about how we serve each other in church, but I think it applies to work. If you're doing it in his name for his purpose, God does not forget that. Your bad deeds don't erase all the, all the good stuff, nor do your good deeds erase all the bad stuff. No, the only thing that erases our bad stuff is the blood of Jesus. And the only reason we get, we can be guaranteed a reward is because of the promise of God. But the good news is that we get a reward. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? 
We need to be motivated by God's reward. Lastly, verse 9, employers. If employees need to be motivated by God's reward, employers need to really be motivated by God's justice. Look at verse 9. And he says, and you masters do the same things to them. Do you see what he's doing? Paul is doing something that was radically countercultural. It seems normal and right to us, but it was radically countercultural there. He's saying, I am now exalting slaves up to a position and you down to a position. I am putting you on a level field, slave and master. Your relationship has changed. He's not saying that, that the masters don't still have authority. He's not erasing the, the authority there. He's saying, I put you on the same level relationally. Therefore, if you're a believing master or a believing employer, you might say, you need to have the same care for others. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about um, some of these practical transformation things. Go back and listen to the message and get into that. But that's the point. The point is that we need to be committed to God's, God's view of justice, which is we're all supposed to have the same care for each other. But also notice God's going to judge us by the same standard. He says in verse 9, he tells the, the masters, hey, give up threatening. He says, this is why you need to know that your own master is also in heaven and there's no partiality with him. In other words, stop threatening that you're going to judge your employers, I mean your employees, because at the end of the day, God's going to judge you both the same. Listen, listen, this is what the scripture says, listen. Romans chapter 2 says this. God will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves and refuse to obey the truth and live instead in lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Listen, if you're being treated unjustly at work, that boss is not going to get away with that. God's going to deal with it. If your boss is a believer, that believer will get chastened pretty, pretty radically. If your boss isn't a believer... And that's just another thing that's heaping up the wrath of God on them. That's scary. You should be praying for them that they come to repentance, they come to believe in Jesus. Listen, if, if you're a believer and you're a boss, God's put you in a position. If you're ever in a position of authority, whether it's whatever kind of authority that is, if you're in that position of authority, you're not there because you're so wonderful. God's given you a stewardship and he's going to judge you for that stewardship. How you treat the people that you're over. I also want you to think about this. It's, it's hard to, to think about this idea of judgment and connecting to justice, but let's remember, in God's economy, in God's economy, what's meant to motivate us is not just the fact that he's going to judge us the same, but his great mercy. Therefore, as bosses, as Christian bosses, what we should want to display to our employees is great mercy. Do you remember uh, the story in 1 Kings chapter 12, Rehoboam, Solomon's son? If you don't know it and you read in our Bible reading plan, you'll get to it, I think, this week. But what happens is, you know, Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes king, and, you know, the, the Israel is as prosperous as it's been, and he wants to kind of make his name go, go more, and so he wants to do more building projects. And so Rehoboam has his father's counselors around them, and he says, you know, there's, the slaves are kind of complaining about all the work they need to do. What should I do? You know, he's the new boss, and so he's not sure what he should do. And so his father's counsel said, you know, why don't you take it easy on them a little bit? Show them some mercy. And if you show them mercy, they'll know they can trust you, and then you'll be able to move forward in your, products, in your projects. But this guy was young. Rehoboam was young, and he was cocky, and he didn't, he didn't want to listen to these old guys tell him what to do. And so what he did was he gets his young friends around him. Bros, what should I do? And they say to him, oh, man, you know what? Here's what you need to say to these guys. You know what? You think my father's waist is fat? In other words, he was that prosperous. My little finger will be fatter than my father's waist. You're going to work even harder for me. You know what happened? Split God's people in two. Great disaster. Why? Because he chose to use his authority in a way that wasn't merciful. 
It didn't show mercy. All these things, all this idea about authority is about us recognizing that when we follow Jesus, he transforms how we relate to authority, how we operate as those in authority and how we submit to those in authority. You know, the Bible says, I'm going to close with this. The Bible says that the evidence that we are been born of the Spirit, we've been born again, the evidence of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12, I think it's 1, 1 to 3, is that we confess the Lordship of Christ. We say Jesus is Lord. Paul says you can't say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And no one says Jesus is accursed who has the Holy Spirit. And what he means by that is not just verbalizing the words, but nobody submits to the, the Lordship of Christ apart from a work of God's Spirit in their life. And if you resist the work of God's, uh, or you resist the Lordship of Christ, you reject the Lordship of Christ, that's evidence, no matter what comes out of your mouth, that you actually are not a child of God. In other words, listen to me. Recognizing the authority of Jesus is the evidence that we actually trust that he loves us, that he died for us, that he paid for our sins, that he's got a guaranteed home for us in heaven. And that changes how we deal with authority here. God, I want to submit to you. You have all authority. Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. I want to submit to your authority, and I want to follow you. And I want to I want to submit the way you submitted to the Father. And I want to uh, rule or, uh, or lead the way you lead in mercy, in patience. Because I want to follow you because I trust that you've already given me eternal life. That's what this is about. This isn't just about having a better home or a better work life or using Jesus to get your promotion This is about us saying, okay, Lord, we want to let you transform even our homes and our workplaces. Let's pray to that end.